when they don't tell you about something it's because they can't talk about that or because they haven't formulated a view or they're not ready to go there we see the pause as right i'm in now let me tell you about myself all the great idea i have Hi, it's Holly Ransom here. Welcome one and all to Coffee Pods, Fuel Your Difference, a podcast for the change makers and the game changers. This podcast is built around a simple hypothesis. How long does it take to learn from someone's lifetime of experience? Coffee. So in the time it takes us to share a cup of coffee with our guests or for you to enjoy one as you listen along, we're going to tap into the lifetime of experience of some truly remarkable people who've driven significant change. I'm a big believer that success leaves clues. And be it putting an audacious idea into action, shifting a team culture, or even a country's for that matter, or using their influence to drive progress, all our guests have powerful insights, pragmatic tips, and passionate calls to action that can help each of us to fuel the positive difference we're all working to create in our lives, organizations, and communities. Coffee potters, we have a cross-cultural kind of coffee for you today. We're in Japan and we're talking with Melanie Brock, who first visited Japan in 1982 as a Rotary Exchange student and has never looked back. She's had over two decades of experience in Japan and has developed an incredible array of contacts in the corporate, political and diplomatic sectors. And she's played an unbelievably pivotal role in strengthening Australia-Japan relations. She's a member of the board of the Australia-Japan Business Cooperation Committee and is the Chair Emeritus of the Australia-New Zealand Chamber of Commerce in Japan, after serving as Chair for six-plus years uh, up until 2016. Our conversation today is really going to focus on cross-cultural understanding. We're going to use Japan sort of as a little microcosm with which to think about how we can do a better job of approaching situations where we're doing business or seeking to build understanding and relationship with people that are from a different background, a different culture than that of our own. I hope you really enjoy the conversation. Here's Melanie. Well, Melanie Brock, I'm thrilled to be able to have a coffee pod here with you in Japan. Thank you so much for making the time to chat. I think you have a remarkable story. It was really cool when we connected uh, a couple of weeks back now at a Sydney conference to find that we have this common link of the small town of Albany in the southwest of WA where you grew up. Indeed. I am fascinated to know the story of how someone who grew up in Albany has now spent about a sum total of 36 years living in Japan. Well, I don't know how or why it happened, but I do remember Dad's uh, a member of the Rotary, was was a member of the Rotary Club, Albany East Rotary Club, and we had uh, exchange students stay with us a bit and uh, I don't think I was necessarily that kind to them all the time, so I look back on that and worry what I, what I was like. But I do know that it made me think about being part of that program and so apparently I used to ask if I could go and you know when would would I be able to go so I applied when I was 16 but I can't really remember I think I was I went to the eastern states as we call it um when I was I mean oh mum and dad must have taken us on trips but I think I went on a United Nations Youth Association um visit to um Adelaide and then I had done some other things but I really hadn't ever thought about traveling overseas or like I don't remember having great um, aspirations to be in any one particular country or I never really knew much about um, the world outside Albany really wow. although I wanted to I'm okay. sure I was interested but I just don't ever remember I don't now remember then thinking about it I certainly didn't have any um, idea about Japan so what was the passion at a young uh, age then what, what did you think you might do with your life oh apparently when the local um, member for parliament came to visit an old family friend 
he asked the class, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? How old are you? I was 12, I think, at the time. And he said, you know, does anybody know what they want to be? And I apparently said that I'd like to be uh, a diplomat. Oh, there you go. Mm. So there was definitely the aspiration there. Yeah, but as I say, that's the unusual thing because I can't remember, like I didn't, at high school I was studying two foreign languages, Indonesian and Italian. So there was probably those things were triggering it. But I remember applying, and you can write on the application up to three countries. And my first uh, country of choice, you know, and you're limited by the countries, of course, that Rotary offers the youth exchange program to. So I remember I think I put down French-speaking Canada, and I'm not quite sure why. I'm sure, and I have been, and it's a beautiful place. But I, I think I was probably like a lot of other uh, 16, 17-year-old um, young women in Australia, and we had this sort of love of Europe probably, um, even though Asia was on my doorstep and has been home now for a long time. And then secondly I put down West Germany, which is, you know, not a country anymore, of course, shows how old I am. But then the third one, I think it might have been somewhere in Europe, but then I got a letter from the Rotary Exchange Group after I'd been um, selected to say that my country was Japan and I was just shocked. And I'm fascinated. Talk to us about landing in Japan many moons ago because we've been at a business lunch today Mm. where we've been hearing about still the challenges for women in business. You're here running a really successful business. You've started yourself. Uh, You've been able to really connect in and network throughout Japan. I can't even imagine what Mm. it must have been like landing here as a, what, 17, 17. 18-year-old? Yeah. What was the landscape like? I remember being incredibly... um, homesick but not homesick necessarily for mum and dad even though I'm sorry mum and dad you might be listening but it was more for you know the world that you knew because you know you're growing up in Australia in a small town you know everybody essentially they know you mum and dad had a shop in town so you know we blah 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 and then suddenly I was in this uh, rather large town of 240,000 people, which was to me a metropolis, <laughs> which <laughs> Japanese people love. Coming from Albany. Oh, yeah. You know, but so it was also learning to deal with small and big, like the same and different. Um, and of course, the language. I simply didn't have any language understanding whatsoever. So I do remember being lost um, in many ways, just, but also very frustrated at not being able to participate ever in a conversation. I imagine that builds a lot of resilience. I think it probably did and also drive. Yeah. Um, I made it my thing to learn Japanese. And, in fact, I found a letter yesterday that talks about uh, a visit that was made by the mayor, the then mayor of Albany um, to a town in uh, Tohoku, so it's about 100 k's, I guess, from where I was, uh, that subsequently was um, hammered in the uh, 2011 um, tsunami and earthquake. But that... Uh, visit in April of the year I was here in 1982 is interesting because in the letter I've written to mum and dad I think saying something like um, that somebody at the embassy mentioned that they thought that there was someone up north who was doing really well at her Japanese and I remember in the letter I've said something like how excited I was but now I know how difficult Japanese is and I know the quest to uh, or the road to sort of perfection is basically Never ending. Lifelong study. <laughs> Three months into it, I don't even, I can't even imagine what, what I was thinking to A, be that excited that somebody thought that I was doing so well in the Japanese language after three months. But I, I can't imagine how I was probably even understanding anything. Um, 
So I must have been stringing sentences together and just throwing in English words when I thought I didn't have that understanding. So it was it was resilience but also drive to, to get much, much better. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I remember having headaches from... Really? Like, yeah, after school. Studying so hard. Just literally studying so hard. Wow. Yeah. So how early in the piece did the country grab you? Um, how, did you know early on that you were going to make a life here? No. Although I fell in love with a bloke who... Uh, I then married, uh, not that year because I was 17 and that was rule number 12 in the Rotary Youth Exchange. <laughs> do not guidelines. get married. Do not, yeah, do not get. <laughs> I think the guidelines say something like no fraternising with members of the opposite sex gotcha. yeah. uh, in, in the way that we would have written it those days, I guess. But I do, I don't know that I ever thought that I would end up in Japan forever, um, but I sort of do now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was 36 years ago and out of that, 36, I've been here for about 25, 26, I think, if I add it all up. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a little bit about cross-cultural understanding because mm. I feel like we we talk about it a lot. We know it's it's of increasing importance yeah. in the world that we're moving into. We're more interconnected than we've ever been. Uh, the, the, the sort of borders that once existed are continually being broken down. What can you share with us in terms of how to effectively go about approaching with empathy, with understanding, building cross-cultural connections and doing business? You know, I think there's a great danger uh, in us not learning about cross-cultural um, awareness, cross-cultural and having cross-cultural training, I'm quite sure that a lot of it is plain common sense to 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 uh, to be um, very blunt, I guess. Um, I'm not in any way underestimating or denying the importance of training because I think that really is valuable. Um, but I, I think some of the major clangers that I personally have caused and many of the clangers that I see Mm -hmm. are really uh, from a lack of communication and a lack of um, preparation essentially um, and just being a bit of a goose. Um, So (laughs) I think in there 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 would be ways that you don't be a goose in one country over another, for example. So there's definitely a level of awareness that I think people should have when they travel overseas or yep. whether when they in, encounter um, people that are very different to themselves. But I'm not so sure that it's something that we can learn in a classroom unless those very same students are prepared to open their listening ears, as the Japanese say, and get out there and be really mindful of um, just situational awareness. I don't know if that's really a thing, but I, I sense that sometimes it's about how you, how you might, I, I guess it's just what you know from your own background, but making sure that the person who is your main guest, for example, sits in the middle of the table, to me, is second nature. But I see it so often that quite often when we're arranging a a seating for a business delegation or a lunch or dinner or something, somehow because the Japanese tend to be uh, hesitate or to think that there's a plan in place, they hold back. Then they don't get the seat that they should be in and then there's some issues around. There's some tension. And there's tension. And, and so recently I said to a couple of people that I, what I'm saying now basically, that I felt that there wasn't real cultural, like you didn't need cultural, cross-cultural um, training as much as people purport, and they reminded me of those um, situations. So perhaps some of my own views are coloured by the fact that I think it's um, common sense, but in a foreign country there needs to be more practical application of that, I guess. The other thing I suppose with that is that I sometimes I think we're, a little nervous about how that cross-cultural training plays out for another country or another culture and we might be oddly too reserved um, or awkward yep. or a bit cumbersome in our own 
So you've probably just got to drop that and then apply your learning and then listen and watch for what's happening. And then I think you'll you'll get it each time. You mentioned communication and yeah. preparation are often two challenge areas. Do you have any kind of rule of thumb or guide as to what communicating well and what preparing well will look like? Well, I I think with that preparing well should come the follow-up because that is equally as important, I think, in Japan and probably anywhere. Um, but more so here where I'm very, very mindful uh, and don't practice it as well as I um, should um, of a note after a lunch or dinner or uh, a gift has been received. And having said that, I've got a pile of, you know, notes that I should be writing right now. But there's a lot of follow-up that I think should happen. I think that preparation can come down to uh, at least knowing, you know, the person's background in terms of where they might have been born or, you know, not who they vote for, but like if you've got a politician, for example, work out which party it is, you know, yeah. I mean, and what was know that party before? Know the basic stuff. And, and I don't think it's necessarily, it's much easier now um, with, you know, everything that's available to us, you know, just no excuse line. really, is no there? excuse, no yeah. excuse. And, you know, stuff that you find out might not necessarily be stuff that you talk about, um, but it'll give you a sense of how you play that. Um, for example, I know that the mayor of Yokohama has an incredible record of support for working families. Mm -hmm. And so when I was describing her to you, I said that this was her background um, or rather this is the approach that she takes. And and it was therefore uh, really important to, to me to hear her today in that business lunch talk about that view in a different way so that it that, that builds on my own preparation mm -hmm. for the next time um, that, you know, you're testing your own gotcha. understanding of a person too um, because people change as well. What's written in Wikipedia isn't always going to be right <laughs> or at any point sometimes, yeah. I, I notice as well you have a really incredible way of sort of affirming the people that you're introducing at the same time, colouring the context that allows conversation to flow. So you're very good at oh, setting nice. up Thank you. conversation between people. And I can imagine, you know, as sort of a facilitator of dialogue and a connector of people, that's been a really fabulous asset, whether you've worked at it or not. It's certainly well, a skill. Well, thank you. But, you know, I I think that sometimes um, the person – so just on the weekend I read this um, Japanese article in the Nikkei which talks about manners. It's an etiquette piece. and uh, There's a bit of that here. Yeah, there, there's a lot of that. <laughs> and this this etiquette advisor um, talked about how – I know, and she's a specialist apparently, but – I read it every week and it's a different person but it's essentially, you know, this is how you should do this and how you should do that. And I read this piece and I realised that I've actually been doing the wrong thing for essentially 36 years <laughs> in terms of the order that you introduce someone because for me what I see a lot of the time is people hold back and maybe that's a cultural thing with Japanese to a certain extent or people understand at what point they will be mm -hmm. um, introduced. So sometimes I think but then that person won't get introduced and that would be terrible because if you've brought them, for example, I want for everybody to at least have the chance to at some level interact with someone because there's so much that people get from that. Mm. Um, so I've made it my thing, I guess, to make sure that uh, I can see people and bring them through. Yep. Um, I guess it's also because a lot of people have done that for me over the years. Um, the Japanese sort of you know, they're very um, mindful, I think, of the next generation and um, how that gets passed down. And so I've seen a lot of people do that in a really effective way. So maybe I've learned from them, but maybe it's just a, maybe it's just a thing. But I think, but, but I think it's very important in Japan mm. because 
your business card, of course, gives you uh, your chance to tell someone what rank, well, not rank, but, you know, like what level you are in a business or where you are in an organisation or if you're in the, you know, the foreign service, what level you are, et cetera. But that just that extra little nudge of this mm. is what it is and then that, that's what it is. Um, that's where I think that hopefully that helps my clients sometimes. Mm. You mentioned people holding back. You do yeah. the opposite and I mean that as a compliment. I think you're really great at you have just this natural confidence and presence. It's a real X factor. Have you always had oh, that confidence? Well, not referring to mum and dad too often, but mum said that she, when she sent me off to primary school, I think it was early on, she thought she might have to pay someone to be my friend because I was so shy. Really? And I know everybody goes, really? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't but, believe um, that. Yeah. But um, so I don't remember being shy. Um, I don't remember uh, giving mum and dad grief, you know, because they thought that I wasn't making friends. But maybe the maybe coming to Japan and maybe that's what that, I mean, I, I'm fairly sure it happened before. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I, I'm very grateful to Japan being quite a flat um, society. Okay. Um, you know, I don't ever feel that people, like if you go and meet, say, for example, the head of some business, there's not many opportunities, not many times when they won't say, I'll come in and meet, you know, like I, I feel like everybody's been very open. Okay. So maybe it might be that I've created a little position for me as Melanie because quite often business people tell me that they don't see me as either Australian or Japanese. It might be that I've created or found a sort of a middle ground that sort of covers both even. I don't know. Yeah. I was curious about that because I can imagine, you know, moving here at 18, mm. there can't have many, you can't have been around too many young girls that had sort of no. aspirations like you, necessarily too many Australians. Yeah. So I was wondering whether you'd kind of seen being different as almost a badge of honour from a, from a young yeah. age. Well, I mean, when I first came, I remember the kids in, I was at a school that had a kindergarten attached to it, and the kids used to make fun of my Japanese, you know, oh, relentlessly. They were little vicious things and they just follow me and, you know, but foreigners were very, very unusual. Um, and the word for foreigner is gaijin. And so they would just call out gaijin, gaijin, gaijin constantly. And so part of the headache, that I mentioned before is possibly that I used to go back and try and study because I was uh, I was urging myself not to or I was driving myself not to ever be picked up for crappy Japanese. I just didn't want any flies on me for that mm. because it's not a hard language to pronounce. It's quite a um, uh, grammatic, you know, for all sorts of other reasons. It's a very tricky language, but it, in terms of pronunciation, it's not that hard, okay. like Chinese or, you know, other languages. So I felt that there shouldn't be any reason why anybody was making, like, um, fun of me. But I do, so I probably pushed myself there. But, you know, I, I'm still friends with a lot of the girls who I was, or the guys too, um, uh, from school, from high school, and I sort of probably don't think I've changed very much. So I don't know that I've necessarily looked to become any different to what I was, mm -hmm. but I do know how being different in an environment that is essentially the same because Japan doesn't have a lot of foreign co uh, countries represented in its, in its you know, um, background. So I think that might have taught me how to find that middle ground that I play both sides, if mm -hmm. you know what I mean, mm -hmm. um, or not, not play it but play in it, yep. play in both parts. Um, yeah, yep. less so in Tokyo now, of course, because there are just a million different people here and it's much more, um, uh, you know, modern, global, blah, blah, blah. But in those early days it was very, very different. I feel like I'm, I'm lucky getting to talk to someone who's got 
such a deep knowledge of a place. It's interesting traveling as a tourist and then being mm. able to get to ask questions of someone that's spent an enormous amount of time here. What, what do people not know about Japan from the surface, from what you glean having a tourist experience? What would people fail to understand about the culture or some of the, the nuance, be they positive yeah. or negative, about this country? I don't know what people see as a tour. Uh, you know, I think that what I would encourage people to do is to get out of Tokyo and get out of the big cities because the what I am very, very grateful um, for is the chance to have gone to a, a sort of regional part of Japan um, because I think that a lot of what Japan holds very true and tight is found in regional Japan, just not seen Spoken so much like in the a big true cities. regional girl. I well, like that. Well, that's the thing. You yeah. see, if you know, if you still call it the Eastern States, you know what, <laughs> totally. you know what it's like, you know. And so I really think that there's a little bit about Japan that it's in Tokyo because mm-hmm. essentially a lot of people are from the country mm-hmm. um, here, but it's not seen uh, that easily. So I think that that it just see, I, th- I think you need to go out to the country to see real Japan or to feel it. Um, but that's not to say that people don't have great experiences learning about Japan in Tokyo and Osaka and Fukuoka and other places. Yeah, but it's it's interesting to see what a tourist uh, thinks of Japan. And I was horrified to see a ranking the other day that said that I think the top tourist experience was the Mario Karts that drive around town. <laughs> I did see that. Oh. I did Google that on my way into the country. And, went, and then, there you go. Way. And then the second one or the third one was an owl cafe. I'm like. Oh, but, you know, I hope that the people who have the owl cafes and that they're making money and doing themselves. Yeah, you know, they've got a very you know, successful niche. niche. <laughs> Go for it. You know, I've heard of a goat cafe. I've heard of all sorts of cafes. But does that tell me anything about Japan? Absolutely not. Mm. It's very easy to go down the Japan is quirky, Japan is unusual, um, whereas if anything I would love for people to come to Japan and feel the sense of quiet that I think is here in amongst everything, um, the lack of chaos um, that I think uh, can be uh, good for Japan and also difficult for some people to deal with in terms of how people, you know, express themselves and the like, um, but just the general quietness mm. um, and how that plays out in customer service, how people treat each other, that general sort of civility that I think Japan has taught me a lot about. Whether I practice or not is another thing. Well, I was going to ask you about the quietness because, you know, on one hand, and I agree with that, yeah. that was an observation I was sort of making even in Shibuya, you know, two days ago, epicentre of one of the busiest squares in the world, and it was unbelievably quiet still. It wasn't noise. It wasn't like what you would get in a Times Square equivalent. But, you know, so one hand I can go there's a mindfulness and kind of a, a stillness, you yeah. know, it's comparative to what I would say of life in Australia. But then you and I were just talking on the way uh, here about the dark side or the shadow side of mental health and, mm. and the fact that a lot of things are held in and yep. not spoken about and suffering happens in silence. Yep. How does that kind of tension yeah. coexist? I mean, you know, I've spoken to, um, I mean, I'm very lucky. I've got um, some Japanese people I talk to uh, about a lot of things and then others who uh, I might not have spoken about for, I don't know, I think that a lot of people talk about like different people have different ways of expressing stuff, of course, and so there must be a lot of people who are having conversations in different places now um, because there are counselling services um, operational. There are, you know, um, there's much more um, focus on uh, the provision of mental health services. But I still don't know that Japan as a society, 
opens itself up to potential, I don't know if it's criticism or that social cohesion that keeps Japan tied and that stillness and that mindfulness and everything else is one thing. But the flip side of that is a lot of pressure for people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that it might be that privately people can uh, recognise that they have an issue and then go and seek help because Japanese people are extremely industrious and resilient and and they're also smart so they they will seek help if they know that they need to but are they able to um, talk about it as openly as we might or has the stigma still um, prevented them from describing things but I don't know that people open up about those things about areas where there are bumps in the roadway. I wanted to talk to you about what it is you do because mm. I would describe you as an influencer, Ooh. someone who gets it done and find what, finds ways in the political spectrum, in business of, you know, manoeuvring situations, getting the right people in the room, positioning ideas in a correct way and getting the outcome. You know, you're, you're a pragmatic woman and I like that. Mm. Uh, I wanted to ask you about, you know, the, the kind of advice that you've got around how to effectively position ideas mm. and situations in order to be influential. What have you garnered sort of over your, your time in business? Um, I think it comes back to the, it's a quite a boring thing, but I think it's that listening um, part. I I think that people uh, in Japan are mostly very open and have been very supportive of me. Give it, they give great advice. They give me a hint. They give me um, ideas about where I go next with something, with an issue, an idea or something that I'm trying to play out. But the the most important thing that they that they tell me is when they stop or where they stop because I know that they essentially don't tell me fibs, you know, like people are very open, I think, about things, and but they don't, sometimes they won't tell you about When they don't tell you about something, it's because they can't talk about that or because they haven't formulated a view or they're not ready to go there. So if you're asking for an opinion on something, for or example. If I, if I would take a conversation to a point where I say, oh, so what's your view on that? then they might say A, B, and I think, what's C? And then I want to know why they didn't say C. How do you probe that sensitively? Um, Very long term. So relationship. So obviously you've got to make sure that you protect that um, relationship and that friendship that you might build. I think you have to be very aware of the signs that that's it for today. We're not going to get to C, but I might tell you when I'm ready. So you know, that's where your follow-up letter is helpful because you can say, I really look forward to the next time that you might be, et cetera, et cetera. But stopping is the most important thing I, I've i learned. Stopping and just letting your counterpart speak. And Australians don't do that very often. And we don't like, or not that we don't like, the pause is a tough thing. We don't like that. And we see the pause as, right, I mean, now let me tell you about myself. Off I <laughs> go. What a great idea I have. And so then the Japanese have probably got to a point where they might have been giving you B or C and you've just gone boom and it's over. So I think that's the pause is a tricky thing and I think the language. I think that we don't know enough about foreign languages or rather we don't speak enough foreign languages and we don't honour those people who do. We don't seek diversity and background of ethnicity. Um, 
well, we don't, we, you know, some people do. That's a, a big fact. Well, I think that, that's an important piece too, because yeah. sometimes I think people use the not speaking the language as an excuse. And okay. I think there's still so many steps you can go to, even your piece around how do you think about the diversity of the people you surround yourself with? Yes. So yeah. that you can yeah. go a, a lot of the way there, even though you might okay. not have done the, because yeah. because people don't have to learn how to, speak another language i i don't think i agree that, we should yeah. have more of it but you shouldn't you can't use all do that not just, speaking no, it as I an agree. excuse to yeah, not pursue totally. the relationship and i think that it's you know governments have a role to play in supporting um schools to have proper curriculum for people who want to do languages because and for those who don't as well but i don't think that you can all rely on you know 100 percent proficiency before you enter into a business discussion or sure. Or, uh, you know, you're a, an academic who's coming to give a paper. You can't give it in the language of the country you're visiting all the time. Well, a lot of the time. As you told us, lifelong learning journey. Exactly. It'll be 100. <laughs> we'll be 100 and, and the rest. But I do think that because of the, the combination of the, I'll tell you A and B, and then the Japanese will um, give that, they'll, they'll slow down. And then quite often I find that um, the we jump in and want to then give our view over what was coming next. And then we ask a question and we ask it in a way that, of course, the other person is, if they're not a, a proficient English speaker, they're having to pull it back into their own language and, in this case, Japanese. Try and digest. Take it in and then formulate the answer in a way that takes into consideration the fact that you're at A and B, don't cover C, give the person the respect that they are due but the process needs to be taken into consideration. And so there might even be a little bit of an umming and ahhing and sometimes I find that people think that that was them, uh, the counterpart, shirking, uh, taking a position on something but I think it's linguistic. I think that people are sometimes just simply working out how to um, convey that. Um, so interpreters are really, really important. And good, good interpreters are even better, yeah. you know. Um, so I think the, you know, I trained as an interpreter and I'm not a very good one, but I, I do know some amazing interpreters who are seamless in terms of their delivery of message and for both parties and 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 that needs to be valued much better in, in business but also in just general. You mentioned kind of stopping being one of the most important things you've, you've learnt through your own mm. doing and own experience. I know you've had the privilege of working with some remarkable leaders. I know you're a person that's naturally got this insatiable curiosity, so you've sought mm -hmm. out a lot of people to learn from. What's what's sort of the really, if you reflect on the advice that you've received over the course of your career, that one you look back at and go, that was a piece that that really was pivotal, what I've gone on to do, or shaped the way that I lead yeah. and think about the world. A Japanese person taught me that if I listen very carefully, the key will be given to me in what's not said as much as what is said. So probably what I've just described about that pause and that stop is based on something that I was taught. The other thing is probably based on a Japanese, like people in at 54 in Australia, in, in Australia I feel, are sort of people ask me questions like, oh, you know, have you thought about which city you're going to retire in or, you know, so when are you going to call it quits and take a sea change? And you I made a seventy-six-year-old mayor today. Exactly, I know. We're just getting started. Totally. And so I, I think that being in Japan, where a there is a an aging population and all of those issues that we heard about today about demographics, but I also think that in Australia, do we stop ourselves just a bit too early? Japanese 
like being really, really gutsy and getting going and still being out there at 76 as, the, you know, the mayor of Yokohama and all these other amazing people who I meet who are in their 70s, they actually, and 80s actually in Japan, but they afford me a bit longer than I might get at home. And listen, I'm so grateful for the time that you've Not given at us. All. One final question I wanted to ask you is one I like to ask all our guests, and that is if you could leave our listeners with a call to action, what would you encourage them to go do? Read more. Mm. I um, I, I tr- uh, struggle with that, reading more, because I think we're so bombarded and, you know, I mean, I love Twitter for all of the information that it gives me and I, you know, I uh, enjoy reading, but I think I should read more um, because Twitter just, the Twitter just gives me a sense of what I might be able to read, but I, there's a lot off Twitter, of course, you know, there's a truckload off Twitter that, that I should be reading in any case, but I think that people should read more. And I feel like that's top of mind for a reason that's mm. significant. Why is that on your radar at the moment? Probably um, business stuff, I guess, at the moment for me. But I think that um, as Japan has its time in this, perhaps it's related to that last comment about being a generalist in Japan, but um, there's a lot of good stuff written about Japan. There's a lot of good stuff written about Japan's future in terms of what it offers, uh, lessons, you know, to other um, post-industrialised democracies vis-a-vis the demographics, vis-a-vis anything. Um, But I think there's a lot of stuff written that I could read and learn from and I think that I could then translate that into my own business um, uh, sort of interactions and any advice that I give people. Um, And I I think that I should read more. So my advice to people, my call to action would be to read more. People would say things like, oh, you know, you'd suggest writing to your local politician and that you'd suggest, you know, standing up and being heard and that you'd suggest, you know, um, making a stand. All of those things are given. We all know that we've got to do what we have to do to make a big bloody uh, run at this. But I think if you were to do one thing more and you could do it better, you should read more. What a great note to end on and what tangible advice to give people. People listening right now can go and do that, pick up a book, go find an article, exactly. scroll on your phone and find something worth yeah. reading and sit there and, and spend the 5, 10, 15 minutes, yeah. hour, whatever it Where is. Where you find it. Yeah. yeah. And I should take my own advice as well <laughs> <laughs> with a lot of this. Yeah. Well, thank you so no, much for no, making the time you, and thank you for having us in your wonderful home. Not at all. Come back again sometime. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me. Thank <laughs> you.